Welcome to Discourse, a GBC original podcast that explores multiple perspectives to think deeply and connect honestly with each other. I'm Anne Song. And I'm Sarika Narayan Singh. On the agenda today, Anne and I will be discussing Zoe Tennant's walrus essay titled Breaking Bread, Bannock's Contentious Place in Aboriginal Cuisine, published on May 20th, 2016. So Sarika, how's it going? I know intercession is over and school's getting really busy, but I just want to know how you're doing. Things are good. Um, got to mark some really phenomenal podcasts, to be honest. That's excellent. Our students, a lot of them really came through. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it was their time management and organizational skills. How are you feeling? Spring is supposed to be here. It's freezing. We've had some good days and some bad days. Yeah. I, I've been definitely enjoying the good days. I love when it's like um, just crisp outside and Mm. all you just need is like a light coat and a jacket um, or or, or a scarf. I love that kind of weather. How do you know when you need that? Because I didn't know I needed that on the 21st, so I had my winter jacket on Hmm. and I was sweating bullets. 21st was hot. Hot days. Another question. How are you coping with the loss of that hour? You know what? I adjusted quickly. I know we lost the hour, but I have to say it helps with my evening classes because, you know, like so Monday nights and some of my students my Monday evening, maybe uh, they're listening to this Monday nights. It's a three to six class. And by the time it hits five, usually gets pitch black outside. Mm. So everybody wants to go home Yeah, <laughs> and I don't blame them. Right. But now that it's like brighter outside, I feel like there's more energy. People are just like shedding their winter skin and just ready to they're just a little bit more enthusiastic and happy I find I feel it in the mornings though yeah the mornings are mornings are rough so what else is going on I know um I had texted you about Remy Ma and Nicki Minaj's rap battle yeah when I was in the Dominican mm -hmm. I don't know too much about it so I wanted to ask you about it today what is the deal like what is their beef you know I I only know a little bit because I'm I'm a recent Remy fan um, I'm not going to give any credit to Nicki Minaj for putting Remy on my radar. Actually, I am a, an avid viewer of Love and Hip Hop. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, LA, Atlanta, and New York. Um, so when I started watching Love and Hip Hop, Remy Ma had just come out of jail. Got it. For what? Uh, she shot someone. Ooh. Her friend. Oi. Ish. That's. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, she went to jail for about seven or eight years. And during that time, um, Nikki had officially kind of said, you know, free Remy, free Remy, um, indicating, suggesting that, you know, she was on Remy's side. And what Remy was kind of thinking now is, well, that's weird because now you're taking subliminal vague shots at me Mm. in like Gucci Mane songs and Jason Derulo songs. So she went on the record, Remy Ma, saying, when I come for you. You know I'm gonna come for you. Wow. It's yeah. She's mm-hmm. totally explicit. Like I'm gonna name your dog. I'm gonna name your brother, which she did. I'm gonna name. <laughs> Gosh. Your, yeah, and you will know. And so then she released um, a full-on Nikki song. Diss. Yeah, Nikki diss. Did Nikki respond? Like three days too late. Ooh. No, you gotta and get on that. Absolutely. And she responded <laughs> with by collaborating with Drake and Lil Wayne. Oh, her comfort bubble. Yeah, it's like you don't go into battle with your blankie. <laughs> um, I do have to say, I, I don't know too much about Remy Ma, and I did not listen to this song. But based on what you're telling me, I definitely 
appreciate that explicitness. You know, nothing too vague, but just telling us straight up. I know that there's obviously tension and conflict going on here, but um, I think Remy Ma would be an excellent essay writer. Absolutely. I think she's doing exactly what we've been telling our students uh, now that they're writing their research papers. Don't tuck your thesis and your main argument into the conclusion. This is not a novel. Yeah, for sure. This is what I tell my students all the time. Do not beat around the bush. Absolutely. Do not tease. Do not hold back. Just tell it as it is, straight up from the beginning. What about Drake? Is he giving you more life or what? Oh my goodness. Okay, I'm so glad you asked me. I have to say yes. He has been adding life to my life. (laughs) More life. Like, I'm loving his new album. It's a lot of fun. Not album, sorry. Playlist. I know. Playlist. So We could talk about this. Yeah. Like, what does that mean as that artistic choice to say, this genre, it doesn't fall under album. Like, that. that's not the form. Yeah. This is a playlist. I guess by calling it a playlist, he definitely makes it more casual. Mm-hmm. You know, he's actually putting together just a stacking actually 22 new songs and just uh, releasing it. It's not an EP because it's more sophisticated than that. Um, and it's longer than that. But it's like this kind of weird uh, middle ground between EP and album where definitely because it's more casual, I think it also takes the kind of burden of scrutiny away. Like it's a lot more fun and I, I, I like that idea. And then I think that, you know, a lot of our students can take that away as well. Like when you're writing in sort of an investigative piece mm-hmm. or essay, you don't necessarily need to stick to that strict five paragraph format. Oh yeah, and, he, and Drake is definitely you know, it's taking from the framework of an album obviously, but mm-hmm. playing around with it. And I think he's doing this. I actually read a fantastic paper on the McLean's uh, magazine by uh, an author named Adrian Lee and it's uh, it was published recently I think it was last week called Why Drake's More Life Works as a Playlist and basically in this piece he looks at how Music streaming has, as a kind of platform, reshapes the way music production works. Mm. So now that the billboards are, rather than looking at um, the traditional like album sales, now that they're looking at um, how many songs or how many, yeah, how many songs are being streamed, the emphasis is more on streaming as opposed to being album sold, right? Um. So now it just makes more sense for artists to release these albums or, or playlists with a lot of songs so mm. more more life actually as adrian lee suggests here is more like more plays because you're bound to be it, it's bound to be successful uh just because people are going to be streaming a lot more there's more variety and mm. also in this album or this playlist there's you see lots of different aspects of drake and so whether you lo- i particularly love the dance hall drake mm-hmm. so um you know <laughs> there's variety there mm-hmm. so you can just choose pick and choose what you like that's nice and i think that's picking up how users use apple music for instance mm-hmm. like i will probably take his playlist and put it on repeat yeah and i yeah. guess that's, that's definitely gonna rack up the plays. more right? streams more exactly streams. so with, with the changing technology with apple music title spotify musicians are also adapting mm-hmm. and here's a classic example of drake trying to work within this new framework and re- therefore releasing kind of a playlist as opposed to 
um, an album. Cool. And I think that, you know, by terming it playlist, it also, in some ways, just looking at how many features he has, Mm -hmm. enables him to have more artists on. Because it's not all about him, right? Mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, artists on, I particularly enjoy uh, Skepta, the inclusion of Skepta in here. Um, Do you know Skepta? Yeah, we're going to see Skepta the month after. Wow, I am so jealous because I really enjoy Skepta and I he has um well I I don't know him too well but I did listen to his Gunichiwa album which mm. was uh, released 2016 and he's kind of um he's known to be a British grime artist which is I think it means like a mix and an, I could be wrong here a mix of dancehall uh, reggae uh, garage jungle and hip hop all together he's a lot of fun to listen to so I was so excited to hear him uh, included before we move on from Drake totally. I do want to ask you what is your favorite song on his playlist you know I think I need to give the playlist a little bit more work I don't want to commit to any songs yet what about you I really enjoying passion fruit which I think a lot of people are enjoying <laughs> but I have to say sacrifices featuring two chains and young thug young thug. very good very good <laughs> Okay, cool, Sarika. So let's discuss Zoe Tennant's article. Can you give us a brief summary? Absolutely. So in Tennant's essay, she is essentially looking at what is the place and what is the role of Bannock in Aboriginal cuisine. Mm -hmm. Um, And what she has found by looking at multiple perspectives and different people is that it's a very controversial place. And it's grounded in a colonial history, Mm -hmm. which has over time grown into health concerns. It's been wrapped up with uh, residential schools, the creation of the reserve system, and ongoing uh, atrocities to the indigenous population in Canada. When I first came to this essay, I did what many of my students do and is to look at what do we already know about this topic? Mm-hmm. Because I don't really know that much about Bannock and I don't know, I know very, very little about Aboriginal cuisine. Yeah. What about yourself? Same here. I, I very ignorant and that's my fault, partly because... And as I, actually Zoe Tennant goes to show us that even though a lot of dishes are inspired by Aboriginal cuisine or actually are Aboriginal cuisine, the way a lot of menus advertise it is without the word Aboriginal. Right. And yeah. I, I think she sort of suggests that we don't want to acknowledge that because there's some part of us that's um, that we're all guilty and complicit. And, right. Because we all know that we're complicit in, in the colonization. Of yeah. Aboriginal peoples. So, uh, so yeah, I think it's a mix of both. I am, I have to admit, very ignorant about this. And um, I don't know, when I think of Aboriginal cuisine, the first thing that came to my mind was um, Bannock uh, next to the Hudson's Bay Company on Queen Street, the restaurant. Ironically located there. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the restaurant states that, you know, we're inspired by ab- Aboriginal cuisine, but just the title Bannock. And there is a definition at the bottom of their website where they define Bannock to be, you know, um, I think they say something along the lines of, it's a quote around flatbread traditionally cooked on a griddle or stone brought to Canada through Scottish explorers and traders adapted by indigenous people and settlers. So there is a mention there. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know, like I've always assumed that Bannock was Aboriginal and I was actually really surprised to learn that it's actually not. And it's like you said, it's in a really contentious place in the Aboriginal community because it is a direct legacy of colonialism. Mm -hmm. Right. So I've been to Bannock, and Mm -hmm. I've also done a little bit of primary research. So I went on to their website, and I noticed that Bannock is not at the forefront of their menu, even though it is the title of of their restaurant. restaurant. It's sort of buried at the bottom of the website. Mm -hmm. 
And in many ways, bannock is simply used as a vehicle for other items like tacos or cheeseburgers. Interesting. It was interesting. Um, they also have this thing called nasty sauce. Not sure what that's all about. Mm, uh, negative connotation with nasty. It's kind of problematic. I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's to put that on a menu, yeah. And then you associate it with... The juxtaposition is a little bit too yeah. much for me. Um, I then went on to YouTube um, to see what else I could learn about bannock. And according to YouTube, the videos that have been uploaded, they seem like it's sort of this homemade bread, fry bread. I then did a, a quick Google search, and I found out that there is a show called Moose Meat and Marmalade. Oh, I love that title. Isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah, and it's on the Aboriginal People's Television Network, mm -hmm. APTN, and it's essentially two cooks. So one is a uh, self-proclaimed bush cook, and his name is Art Napoleon. Mm -hmm. And the other chef is a classically trained British chef named Dan Hayes. And in their first episode of season one, Art Napoleon reaches out to women in the community and, sa and says, you know, do you want to get together and make some bannock? Hmm. And he prefaces it as, we're looking at ways to make healthier bannock. Interesting. Which piqued my curiosity because yeah. I was like, well, is the unhealthiness of bannock, is that part of the contention around bannock? Right, that the default bannock is, is probably unhealthy. Yeah. So knowing that in the in my background information, uh, that's how I wrote the essay. Yeah, let's talk about what really stood out to us then, because I thoroughly enjoyed Zoe Tennant's uh, piece too, especially how much I learned. It was a very mm -hmm. informative and educational piece, and this contention that mm -hmm. she actually includes, like Bannock's contentious place in Aboriginal cuisine, as, as part of the title, that's exactly what she shows throughout the whole piece because she's looking at the multiple perspectives of the Aboriginal community towards Bannock, like how they view Bannock. Mm -hmm. is obviously not singular. Some people are okay with adapting and incorporating it into their diet. Some people, like Casey Adams, uh, is very much against it. So yeah, what did you particularly appreciate about the piece? I appreciated um, how unified and coherent it was. Mm -hmm. I appreciated the fact that she problematized our simplistic story around Bannock. Yeah. So she says that it is a deceptively simple story to think that the Scottish brought Bannock over in, yeah. the, in the bellies of their ships. And then it was simply adopted and adapted by the indigenous population. Like taken on as if it's like a welcoming gift. Right, exactly. And that's the kind of language mm -hmm. that really manipulates the story and distorts the reality of it. Oh yeah, 100%. And you're right. The, this idea, it, it is very simplistic, this idea of, oh, the Scottish brought over this bread and so, and the Aboriginal people just adapted it into their diet. But it's a lot more problematic than that. Mm -hmm. um, continue. Uh, well, yeah. I was just going to say, I think that, you know, this, um, I'm going to air quote, gain mm -hmm. came with a great loss. And you're absolutely right. I think this quote unquote gain came with a huge loss. And I think Zoe Tennant's incorporation of Casey Adams is fantastic because Casey Adams' example of her installation, the gift that keeps giving, where she, I think she uses clay pots to mm -hmm. represent unfired, unfired clay pots to represent the human body, and she puts in all of the ingredients that make up the bannock. So that includes salt, sugar, lard, milk, and flour. Yeah. To then show how these ingredients actually change and mold, and ultimately destroy the body. Yeah, like yeah. it's a violence. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's this really interesting link that I've never thought of before, which is like when you dispossess people of their land, mm -hmm. 
you are also dispossessing those people from their food source. Right. And this food source is a direct link to nourishing the body. Mm-hmm. So like you just said, it's not just a violence against the land when you take someone's land. It's a violence against their body. It's a long-term active killing off of people. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, it's more than... And that's the gift that keeps... The quote gift that keeps on giving. Exactly, because the repercussions are still to this very day, it impacts the Aboriginal community. Mm-hmm. Still to this very day, the Aboriginal community is paying for this quote-unquote gain of the Bannock. Absolutely. And, you know, for us, at least like in Asian cultures, food is so integral to our family and our community. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine how disorienting it would be and like mentally displacing it would be to have the food that keeps us together physically removed from our table and replaced with a foreign object that we have to adapt to. Mm -hmm. We're Mm -hmm. not just adopting it. We actually have to adapt ourselves to these new circumstances. And and not by choice. Yeah, so going back to your point about the ongoing, let's call it genocide. And it quite literally is a genocide through food. Exactly. The displacement of food. Absolutely. um, And replacing with Bannock. Yes, and Art Napoleon gestures to this in the episode of Moose Meat and Marmalade uh, when he says... You know, the health statistics for our community aren't that great. And that sounds very vague. But what I really appreciated about Tennant's essay is that she gives us hardcore statistics. Yeah. Paragraph seven. Exactly. She proves it. She says, according to the most recent census, which we all have to do, Mm -hmm. nearly 2.4 million Canadians, meaning 7%, she puts that into perspective, live with diabetes. Okay, so you take 7%, and what she does is she puts right beside it, she says, the prevalence among the non-Aboriginal population is 5%. Within the First Nations community, though, the rates are much higher. Mm -hmm. 17%, that's more than three times as much. Mm -hmm. Those living on reserve. And 10% for those living off reserve. So twice as much. So I think that, and I found what Tenet was doing was she took these almost unimaginable numbers and put them in context beside each other. So we can actually visualize right. how problematic and urgent this situation yes. is. Yes, yes. She creates that urgency in her tone, which mm-hmm. is so crucial mm-hmm. in a short essay like this. Yeah. So then when you look at this, going back to the earlier point of, it's not a simple thing of saying, oh yeah, the Bannock was incorporated and adapted by the Aboriginal community. Like, no, the Bannock has a direct link to the very problematic and very urgent health conditions of the Aboriginal communities. Mm -hmm. It has, in many ways, like a parasite inhabited the people Mm -hmm. and destroyed their their medical lives through no choice of their own, right? Yeah, and uh, right after that, Zoe Tennant, after giving those statistics, she also makes it very personal because in paragraph 8, uh, after those stats, she uh, she adds here, Adams, whose mother suffers from diabetes, has a deeply personal connection to the disproportionate odds of developing the disease as an Aboriginal person, end quote. So it's one thing to look at stats, but it's also, again, giving us perspective. When you have someone you love who is sick and who you have to care for, um, and for that person to be directly uh, linked to this legacy of of colonialism. Mm -hmm. I I think she reminds us that this trauma is not just statistics and numbers. This trauma is very personal and very real to the people who live it every day. 
So if I understand you correctly, do you appreciate the fact that Tenet puts a human face on these numbers? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for saying that. That's exactly what it is. She gives us stats, which are great because we can see the disproportionate aspect of what she is saying. Right after that, she reminds us like there's a personal connection. These people who are sick are mothers, our daughters, our fathers and sons. So it's not just logos that's at play here, the logical appeal, but the emotional appeal Absolutely, too yeah. is very much a part of this. Mm-hmm. In addition to Tenet's uh, use of secondary sources, meaning her statistics from census, mm-hmm. she also comes right down to primary sources. So I really appreciated the way that Tenet showed readers, look at how food insecurity plays out with these price differences. So she very clearly tells us that a half kilogram of white flour is $5.13. That's a national average cost. Mm -hmm. However, she contrasts that with Baffin Island, that's up north, Mm -hmm. where white flour, the same amount, costs $13.85. Yeah. And those concrete terms really, it pops out and it jolts you. Wow, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how much of a privilege it is for us to be able to access food so easily. And not and just any affordable, affordable and, and healthy. healthy food. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then for some populations, especially isolated populations, it's really, it's really precarious how they're going to access yeah. healthy food. And this is where, again, going back to her earlier point on how unified her essay is, it comes right back to her earlier point about food being tied to land and in so doing being tied to the body. So it's to say when you dispossess people of their land and you isolate them into these reserves, that's going to have a direct impact on food availability mm-hmm. and affordability and therefore also their body. Now that we've gone through Tennant's essay, I do want to ask you, what is your meaningful takeaway from her essay? couple different things. Uh, first off, going back to our earlier point about, you know, multiple perspectives, I really appreciated that Tennant shows us that the Aboriginal community, or rather Aboriginal communities, is not this singular thing. Different groups, different people, different chefs, different cooks, they view Bannock in different ways. So, for example, Casey Adams is very much against the Bannock, and she feels the need to actually refuse to eat any of the ingredients that go into the Bannock as a, a kind of decolonizing process mm-hmm. and an empowering process. On the other hand, um, someone like Andrew George, he takes the Bannock as, as part of his identity, and he adapts it into... I don't know, what would you say? He adapts it as his own thing? I would say that judging from the way that the essay begins with Andrew George, Mm -hmm. uh, using Bannock as a way to teach and educate the community and then bring people to the table. Like people together as a community. And it's part of something that holds his family history together. Right, because I think he mentioned something along the lines of um, his grandmother and, and his mother. Like the Bannock is something that he always remembers cooking and working with and eating. So as much as it is a colonizing vehicle or, or tool, it was also, for, for Andrew George at least, an opportunity for community and healing mm. through the adaptation of Bannock. What I'm trying to say is that you know, these multiple perspectives, it's really nice because it shows us that the Aboriginal communities is not this one singular entity, that there are different minds, there are conflicting minds, and that this is something that they're contending with and working with. And even though it's unfair that it's the colonized people that have to deal with this contention, 
uh, that they have to work through that pain uh, and the rem constant reminder of the Bannock and the coloniz colonization, the very fact that they can argue about it, the very fact that they dispute about it, and some take it on as their own thing and, and some absolutely refuse, I think it goes to show the agency and autonomy of that community. And when she concludes her essay in paragraph 18, she ends it with, Bannock is certainly part of the story of the Aboriginal cuisine, and it has a place at the table, but it's not the main dish, and it will never be the main dish. It's there as a reminder, it's now part of the identity, but it's not ever going to be the main central piece. And I think that goes to show, again, the agency of the Aboriginal community. So, Anne, just to paraphrase and understand what you're saying, are you in some ways suggesting that what Tenet is showing through these multiple perspectives is how different Aboriginal communities are grappling with the legacy and history and present history of mm -hmm. Bannock and recuperating it as a form of like almost bonding and community building? Yeah, and even sometimes that community building is going to be, as uh, tenant shows, is contentious, mm -hmm. as all community building is. Absolutely. But it's part of the process. Mm. Yeah, and it does bring people together. And it's a great opportunity for people to say, well, should we or should we not include it? Um, how can we make it healthier? Because this is obviously causes a lot of problems. Uh, you know, it's an opportunity for conversation. And identity construction. Exactly. Who are we going to be? What exactly. are we right now? Where are we going? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you know, this same idea is you know echoed by Lisa Myers, who Tenet uh, refers to in paragraph 15, where she says, you know what, it's not like just because the settlers came in and everything changed. Um, it has always been and always will be a, what she says, quote unquote, um, a constant exchange. So it's not like, you know, the Aboriginal communities are just sitting there and this is being done unto them. They have absolute agency. Um, resistance and own political mindsets to to work with the situation but also to find healing find identity find solidarity as a form of resistance and community building like you said earlier so you know that's my meaningful takeaway I really appreciated Tenet's exploration of these multiple perspectives and a reminder to us that the Aboriginal community is working through this but there's agency and hope there and my very last point, I think uh, Tenet's title, Breaking Bread, is uh, fantastic here because to break bread means to dine together, uh, to eat together, to share together. And for a community or for many communities to come together like that and truly break bread and to come to terms with each other and to reconcile, there has to be this awareness and this discussion about what does the panic mean to us, mm -hmm. uh, to others and uh, where does it sit at our table like there has to be an awareness there mm -hmm. i agree i think that's that's a really beautiful point because i think that as with any community that has gone through you know years like hundreds of years of um atrocity mm -hmm. and suffering and trauma and genocide and genocide there needs to be moments of uh, reckoning with those traumatic moments with mm -hmm. the rupture and i think that tenet does a really great job of showing us that history forcing us to engage with it and look at it um, as uncomfortable as it makes us feel. Mm -hmm. um, and in many ways, break bread with her. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like we're sitting, we're invited into this table of this discussion that is beyond mm -hmm. us. It's not, uh, you know, we're not necessarily, we're not part of, mm -hmm. uh, but she's inviting us and mm -hmm. she's saying, why, you know, break bread with us and learn about us and our history and where we are today because of that history. Yeah, and I appreciate that because, um, you know, at UFT, mm -hmm. the artist in residence yeah. is Jamie Black. Mm -hmm. 
And her touring installation is called Red Dress, but it also means redress. That's lying. Right? That's really cool. And so are you familiar with the installation? No, I've heard about it, but maybe you should remind me and as well as the audience. Yeah, so right behind the ROM mm-hmm. at Young and Bloor, or Avenue and Bloor, uh, there's Philosopher's Walk. Yes. And so what Jamie Black has done is uh, she's hung red dresses throughout the trees. Mm-hmm. So it's quite haunting to see, mm-hmm. to engage with, uh, to, as a visual reminder to residents walking through of over 1,200 missing and murdered Indigenous women. Mm-hmm. And to, as, as Tennant's essay about Bannock does, to jolt us into awareness, to shock us, right. and, to, and to activate us to do something, to think about this, to talk about this. And, you know, in terms of my meaningful takeaway from Tennant's essay, I really do feel like I need to be more of a critical eater. Yeah. You yeah. know, Tennant brings up some really great points as she discusses with um, members of the community like Casey Adams. You know, these trendy locavore restaurants that are uh, marketing and selling and advertising local foods. What does local really mean? Right. Is it not just indigenous ingredients, Mm -hmm. Aboriginal food? So what are we buying into and why are we erasing the actual roots from the menu? Right, yeah, like just to paraphrase, so you're you're suggesting that by labeling something local, it's problematic? Because when we say local and the and the ingredients coming from the local land and the soil, like this is technically we're on Aboriginal land. Yeah, we are. And yeah. so you're you're saying by calling it local instead of Aboriginal, or like just being more honest about the ingredients and what the history of those ingredients, yeah. um, there's a there's a erasure there and, and a, a perpetual ignorance almost. Yeah, we are complicit right. in the colonization, like this ongoing by choosing to ignore and choosing not to label it as what it really yeah, should be. Yeah, and recognizing the right. credit. Got it. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you know what I preach about Tennant's essay and what I hope our students also do is with their words, you know, wet my appetite. Mm-hmm. In many ways, Tennant's essay has made me much more curious about Aboriginal cuisine. Yeah, absolutely. I feel very embarrassed and frustrated with my own ignorance, Mm -hmm. but it also has piqued my curiosity and turned my eyes to something that I think that we ignore and we neglect. Speaking of which, didn't one of our friends uh, recommend to us? Yes. So I reached out to Kate Atkinson. Hi, Kate. Friend of the podcast. And... She said, you know, she's a curator of information. Mm. And she said, actually, there is an Anishinaabe restaurant in Kensington Market called Nish Dish. We should try it out. We should. We should. We should go break bread. We should. Um, There's also an Ojibwe taco place that I found online called Cafe Pow Wow. Is it also Kensington Market? I think I think that one might be in Kensington. I feel okay. I'm so sorry. Nish Dish is in Koreatown. Okay. Like Christie area. Yes. The old Koreatown. And... Cafe Pow Wow is in Kensington. We really need to go. Yeah. And thank you so much for thinking so deeply and connecting really honestly. I think we're going to go break bread. I feel like Cafe Pow Wow is a little bit closer right now. Let's go. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.